Genius, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Now that's a general exhortation related to our um, demeanor, our attitude in dealing with people, uh, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted. But it actually comes after he's given some specific exhortations to husbands and wives. And I think that's significant, and I'll show you why here in just a minute. I think it is uh, somewhat amazing that in the New Testament we do not have any model marriage given to us, no accounts of a model marriage. Um, Paul, one of the greatest writers in the New Testament and who wrote on marriage, wasn't married. Peter, who wrote this, was married. We don't know a thing about his marriage. Uh, don't even know the name of his wife. Don't know if he had any children. So, isn't it kind of strange? I mean, to me, it's a little strange that we, we don't have a model given to us. The one that is used as our example in marriage was not married. I'm speaking of Christ. At least not married physically here on earth. So, what we have is the example of Christ's life a life of selfless service and sacrifice for others given to us as a demonstration of the lifestyle and attitude that should be there in a husband or a wife and what they're to have for each other. That leads me to believe that the things that will make a marriage biblical and blessed are not things that are specific to marriage itself. Rather, they are biblical attitudes and actions which apply to all godly relationships. In other words, the things that make for a good marriage are things that have to do with basic Christian attitudes and basic Christian relationships that we learn by being a Christian. And I think a lot of it is learned by being in a fellowship of Christians. The basic things that you're going to need to know in marriage to make that marriage a godly marriage are things that God uh, has as basic um, attitudes, basic ways of dealing with others that are part of just being a Christian. That's why I thought this, was, this verse that we read is significant because it's right in the context of husbands and wives. But then he goes right into this, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit.
not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Those things right there will go a long way in making a marriage what it should be. So that's my first scattered thought. Number two, and no use keeping track of the numbers. I just numbered them for my own purposes here. Number two is that godly marriage is supernatural. There's no use looking to the secular marriage manuals or to the way the world explains marriage to us as as uh, it's going to be any help for us as Christians because... Uh, the Christian life is supernatural, and so is any marriage that's truly going to be a godly Christian marriage. It's going to be a supernatural supernatural thing for which we look to God for help, because that's the only place there's going to be any godly supernatural help. So that's I think that's just I mean these are that's something that we all, I think, realize, but sometimes that stuff creeps in and we, we start looking for help some other place. And uh, it's a mistake. So it's supernatural, but the wrong assumption to make from saying that it's supernatural is that that means it's going to be easy. Uh, or that because it's supernatural and by the power of God, if you're a Christian, two Christians are always going to get along real well in a marriage. Uh, the idea, sometimes we get the idea of a Christian marriage, well, that's going to be heaven on earth. Well, I'm here to explode a myth. I don't see anywhere in the scripture that we are to expect heaven on earth until Christ comes again and makes a new heaven and a new earth. A marriage, a Christian marriage can be a wonderful thing, but we are still sinful and we still live in a sinful fallen world. And we still have an adversary that hates marriage. He hates marriage because marriage is designed to represent to the world something of the character of God and something of the relationship of God and his people. So you can be sure Satan hates Christian marriage. He's out to destroy it. Plus you have the flesh, plus you have the world. So all that, I'm saying... It's not going to be heaven on earth. It's just not that way. Paul said this in the context of Christian marriage. He said, you shall, quote, have trouble in this life. And it was right in the context of talking about Christian marriage in 1 Corinthians 7.28. You shall have trouble in this life. But saying that, I will also say we can learn to deal with the difficulties that come in marriage in a biblical manner. 
We don't have to be defeated by these things. And there can be a substantial reality of the wonder of the supernatural character of a Christian marriage, a substantial reality of that in, in our own lives and as it's viewed by the world. And that's what we should desire. So, another thought. Because of what I just said, the reality of the fact that you will have troubles in marriage. Forgiveness is an enduring ingredient in any marriage. On earth, you'll never get to the stage where your marriage, where in your marriage, uh, you're not going to have to give and receive forgiveness from one another quite often. I was tempted to say daily because I think that's about, about true, but it may not always be consciously uh, a, a uh, asking of forgiveness and a giving of forgiveness, but I think it's, it's almost always there daily, even if it's not something that's verbalized. Uh, and again, that's supernatural. That kind of relationship of asking and giving forgiveness is supernatural. It's, it's a gracious thing. That's not, you're not going to learn that out in the world. Grace makes it possible, although still it doesn't make it easy. I mean, uh, sometimes it's pretty hard to ask for forgiveness. I mean, you just kind of have to grit your teeth and say, I know I was wrong, and I know I need to say something here. And it's not always that easy. It's not always easy to forgive the person either. But grace makes it possible. The next thing I would say is that you have to care enough to communicate. Uh, I know this is kind of a cliche, this thing of communication. Everybody kind of recognizes, yeah, you've got to communicate. But the kind of communication I'm talking about here, again, it's not that easy sometimes. And you have to, you have to work at it. You have to purpose to do it. There should be in a marriage an environment of free and loving communication. I'm talking about between the husband and wife here, especially. Um, free and loving communication. I mean, not all communication is loving. And that's part of the problem. You have to keep from the wrong kind of communication, harsh, abrasive, mean, and work at the right kind of communication, which is loving and kind and thoughtful. You need to have a situation, have an environment where uh, your feelings can be communicated. Your frustrations can be communicated. The ideas you have about uh, the family or the house or whatever can be communicated. And 
shared regularly. I think that's important to emphasize the regular part. Not just, oh, we're at a crisis here, we need to communicate, but day in and day out, work at godly communication where your needs are communicated, your hopes are communicated, your concerns are communicated. And you need to make it a priority to talk together about things like your finances, your schedules, just what you're thinking about the future, uh, vacations, uh, and then spiritual things especially, uh, what you've been reading in the scriptures or what you gained from a particular sermon uh, pray together communicating with God and with one another in prayer uh, the ways you believe that God is leading you or leading the family and communication you know the two way aspect you you speak you listen you say something you look for feedback you want to know what the other person thinks uh, the importance of verbalizing your appreciation for the other person, your love for the other person. Um, the, your spouse should be your confidant, one you can confide in. Communication. I, I, I really feel like it's a tremendous need in a lot of marriages. And the breakdown of the communication is something that, uh, well, if, if there's a breakdown there, there's going to break, be a breakdown in all kinds of areas in the marriage. Now that leads me to this next thought, because when I think about your spouse or my spouse being my confidant, I really think that we ought to have take the position in a Christian marriage that our spouse should be our best friend. Your marriage partner should be your best friend. That that, that just makes <coughs> makes sense. Uh, who who should be any closer to you than the one that God gave you to bring you together in marriage as a unit? As one, there shouldn't be anyone any closer. You're, uh, it's uh, impossible, I would say, for uh, it not to be that the one that God gave you as your helpmate or as your husband uh, would not be your best friend if the marriage is to be a biblical and God-centered marriage. One of the names that uh, the early church called one another by was just the name friend. Um, let me just read it to you here in Third John. Uh, The end of this little letter says, Peace be to you 
the friends greet you, greet the friends by name. Now, the Quakers latched onto that, and that's what they, they call themselves. They are the Society of Friends because they said, well, that's a scriptural designation of the church. Well, why am I saying all that? Well, if we are, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are to be friends, how much more when that brother or sister is your husband or wife? That person should be your best friend. There's no one we should be or could be open, as open with as with our husband or wife. I'm talking about the way God has designed marriage. I know it's not always like that. But I'm saying this is what we should aim at. This is what God would have us to aim at. Friends share their lives. They help each other. They care for each other. They even lay down their lives for each other. Let's turn to John 15. Here is Christ speaking to his disciples. If you think in terms of marriage being a picture of Christ in the church, here's Christ speaking to his disciples disciples in John 15 it says greater love has no one than this then he lay down his life for his friends you are my friends if you do what I command you now listen to this verse here 1515 John 1515 no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. In other words, a friend, a, a friend is one that shares things with you. The deepest things of his or her life are shared. That's, a, that's part of a deep, real friendship. What am I saying? I'm saying this is what we, we are called to in marriage, to share the deepest things of our life with one another, and openness and honesty that uh, is a mark of real, true, deep friendship. And that's part of marriage. Again, your wife your husband should be your best friend. Now, how, how can we establish that kind of friendship, that kind of fellowship with one another as friends in the church, but even more as husband and wife uh, as being friends. How does that come about? Well, I'll tell you one of the big areas. It's just this. It's walking in the light. Walking in the light. Let's turn to 1 John 1, 7. 
normally we don't think of these verses as applying to marriage, but I think they do. If we're, if we're going to have this kind of friendship that I'm talking about with one another in Christianity, but especially I'm talking about between a husband and wife, if you're going to have that, you are going to have to walk in the light. This is how he says it in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't mean when I'm talking about walking in the light, light, I'm not talking about you're walking perfectly in all that you do and say, but you're honest, you're real, you're open. Where, where, where should that be anymore than in marriage? Who could you confide in anymore than the one that God gave you in marriage? Who could you be open with anymore? If we walk in the light, we'll have that kind of friendship that I'm talking about here, open and honest with God and with, the, with each other. That's what brings friendship. That's what brings the fellowship that um, God would have for us in marriage, in Christian marriage. And this next quote doesn't fit exactly, but I told you these were scattered thoughts. And my wife shared this with me today, and it was so good, I thought, I've got to work this in somewhere. So here it is. She read this on a homeschooling site, I think. But uh, C.S. Lewis said this, A woman's heart should be so close to God that a man should have to chase him to find her. Isn't that good? Got to think about it a little bit. A woman's heart should be so close to God that a man should have to, have to chase him to find her. Well, It has to do with walking in the light. That's how it's going to fit. All right. I'm about done. Uh, Proverbs 24. (laughs) Here's another one, of the, <clears throat> another one of these verses that you wouldn't think applied to marriage, but I'm going to try to make it apply. Uh, Proverbs 24, verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. His surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. And I saw, I reflected, when I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, 
a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. <coughs> Marriage is like a garden, like a vineyard or like a, uh, a field here. But I want to use the picture of a garden. And if you take a lackadaisical, sluggardly attitude towards marriage, you'll get nettles and thistles. Now, I want to just share some thoughts here along that line, just using this picture. And uh, not all of these are mine. Some of these were from a, a pastor that I was reading on online. Pastor Burke was his name. And so I'm kind of adding and subtracting to some of his thoughts. Marriage is like a garden. It needs to be watched and maintained as a prized possession if it is to be prosperous and fruitful. It will not just happen because you planted a few seeds. It takes constant attention and cultivation. So the first point under this little section is got to keep watch on your garden. Can't be a sluggard. Attentiveness to your marriage is a prerequisite for growth. Marriages like gardens do not go to seed or grow weeds and become overgrown overnight. Just as the gardener is on the lookout for early signs of trouble, so the husband and wife must stay attentive to the evidence of wilting love. Make sure you keep the lines of communication open. We've already talked about that a little bit. Keep talking openly, honestly, and clearly. Never assume. Make sure you let you know that you, you let your spouse know exactly what's going on. Keep in mind that not only will your needs differ, but the way men and women process things also differ. So it takes some extra work in this area of communication. So you got to fertilize things to make them grow. You need to keep in mind what you're aiming at. You're aiming at a healthy, fruitful relationship. You need to keep in mind that a garden doesn't grow overnight. It takes patience. The gardener has to be patient. You need to use a liberal application of appreciation. So one of the main fertilizers. An application of appreciation. Say thank you often. Not just for big things, but for the little things as well. You need to water regularly with praise. Phrases like, I love you. And you really did well in that, hon. 
that type of thing. I'm, I'm proud of the way you did this. Those help relationship, the relationship grow the way it should. You need to be positive in your comments. If your spouse is deficient in certain areas, don't nag and expect that that's going to get results. The alternative is to look for strength in your spouse and nurture those. You'll start to see growth in other areas as well. Acts of kindness enrich the soil. They cause romance and relationships to bloom. So watch, keep watch on the garden. Then you have to watch out for weeds. A garden left uncultivated will grow them for sure. You see, weeds grow just as well as vegetables. In fact, I've found that they grow better than vegetables. (laughs) And if you leave the garden uncultivated, you're sure to have them. Get rid of the problem areas in your marriage before they take over and choke out the joy of the relationships. Weeds, of course, they start below the surface before you can even see them. Most marriages fail because early on something went wrong in a spouse's heart and he or she didn't deal with it. If left to grow, they escalate into larger, more serious problems. So the point is, weeds start small, and it's a lot easier to deal with them when they're small, before they get those deep roots. Weeds of bitterness start with maybe just some little irritations, some small incident. If it's not dealt with, if there's not forgiveness asked and given, it just takes more roots, you see, and gets stronger and bigger. Weeds of unfaithfulness usually begin in the mind with little seeds of wrong thoughts. So, deal with the weeds. And then, using the picture here out of Proverbs 24, keep your walls in good repair. Talks about the walls falling down here in, in this uh, vineyard. Stone walls are broken down through negligence. You've got to keep those walls in good repair. And for me, when I think of that, I think we need to remember the covenant that we made with our spouse. We said we would forsake all others, keep that wall in good repair. We said it was for better or for worse keep that wall in good repair. And the fact is, the worst sometimes comes before the better. Strong walls help us focus our affections and keep, keep us from temptation. Create strong, clear boundaries in your marriage. Clear walls. Uh, an example of that would be never use 
a member of the opposite sex other than your mate as a means of meeting your emotional needs, you start doing that and you're going to be in big trouble. Keep those, keep those walls strong. And then finally, just to bring it to a close, if we will do those things, we can be sure upon the basis of God's promise and God's word that we will reap a harvest. If planted in the good soil of faith in Christ and diligently cared for by walking in the Spirit, you will reap in your marriage a beautiful, bountiful, bountiful harvest by the grace of God. Just two verses to close with, then. You don't need to turn to them. I'll just read them to you. Um, Galatians chapter chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, this he shall also reap. The one... For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, with some patience and some diligence, in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. I'm putting that in the marriage context. And then... Um, just to kind of emphasize that same aspect. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. All those, all the effort that it takes to cultivate the garden that we're talking about is not in vain in the Lord. There shall be a harvest. And it'll be a good harvest. Well, those are some scattered, scattered thoughts on marriage. Any other thoughts or comments, questions? <coughs>